welcome to another episode of Launch Bite. I am your host, Brian. Chris is not around today. Uh, this is a podcast where we talk about entrepreneurship in Singapore and other random things that interest us. In this episode, we talk to Min, who is the Director of Communication for Vertex Venture. He will share with us his thoughts on the startup scene in Vietnam, his thoughts on the, our local startup scene, and also his project, which is a series of open-source Google Docs that details the startup ecosystem in Southeast Asia. Hi Min, thanks for coming to the show. Um, I actually got to know you a few years ago. Uh, that was during the Saigon Hub period of time. Uh, I'm not sure if you remember. I, I remember that day, uh, that period of time I was in Saigon Hub. Uh, I went there and there was a talk and we were giving a talk that day. Uh, oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, 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 it has been quite some time. Uh, so also right now, uh, you are right now based in Singapore. Uh, by, and I would love to know that, uh, actually, how did you get into the startup scene? Oh, how did I get into startup scene? Well, I was, before I came to Tech in Asia, uh-huh. I was actually in an education startup. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then after that, I was in a, in a tourism startup. And then I came to Tech in Asia. Oh, uh, that was, uh, you, you founded the company? No, I was, I was one of the, I don't know, there was a very small team in the education startup. Uh-huh. Uh, and then uh, I was hired on into the tourism startup as a managing a marketing manager. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but the education startup, it was like maybe about five of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a very small operation uh, doing like education tech for uh, English schools mm-hmm. in the countryside. Uh, and actually during that time when I first came out to Ho Chi Minh City, I started organizing events in the tech scene already. I just kind of, uh, you know, I'm from the valley, and my dad was an engineer, and so mm-hmm. I always already had that kind of, uh, you know, like my family, we lived through the tech boom, so <clears throat> the boom and the bust in the '90s and 2000s. So I was kind of uh, already interested. Uh-huh. Always kind of keen on like what O'Reilly, you know, O'Reilly Media, uh-huh. they were doing, and so uh, you know, I kind of got into the bar camp scene, and that's how I really got into it, as I started organizing organizing bar camp. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, that was, that's kind of how it all began. And I started getting a name for being a good MC and a good, uh, I guess you could say a good, um, uh, uh, organizer for events and stuff like that. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. So that's how people knew me. And I was also blogging on the side and Uh I think that's how Tech in Asia eventually came to know me. A lot of people recommended me to go over there. And so then I, yeah. And then. Yeah, and that 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 was really how I got deeply involved was with Tech in Asia because then I had an excuse to talk to everybody in the ecosystem. Yeah, so it was only uh, I think I got to know um, uh, besides the tech event that I went in Vietnam, the most of the uh, I've been following you on uh, Tech in Asia mainly because I think uh, you have very good writing, and of course all the uh, high profile interviews uh, earlier I said that you have did like for example the CEO of Google, the Twitter APAC, even then their CEO. Um, so I thought the, actually being in the uh, publication uh, gives you a lot of exposure to all these uh, startups and to also learn from them. But I was wondering, have you ever considered running your own startup? Yeah, I mean, I, um, you know, I, there, there's two sides to this. I, I, like, I'm, I like doing product-related stuff. I like thinking through what works and doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like managing people. Uh, but I also think 
you know, and so I like that excitement. Um, but I also think, you know, I have to find a good team, a good idea. And I think, you know, being a founder, at least the type of founder that I've seen in which you're talking about, like a high growth, large type of startup mm -hmm. is, is not really my thing so much. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I have a lot of interest outside of tech and I need to keep my life in balance. And I don't, I don't think, you know, I haven't met that many founders who have like very strong life balance. I think they sweat, they bleed for their startup, you know, and they also have to have a certain amount of, uh, uh, kind of, uh, analness about their product, about their company and stuff. So like if it, I did start a thing, it would probably be more like a lifestyle business or something that I could do that wasn't so intense. Mm -hmm. But I don't, I don't see myself like founding a company that goes on to become like a billion dollar company. I, I don't see it happening. So, um, I also like to ask, between the period that uh, you were like deeply engrossed in the startup scene in Vietnam, right, and now, how, how, how would you uh, see the difference in the Vietnam ecosystem for these startups? Because that's one of the things that I think uh, many of the listeners will be interested. Uh, some could be looking to expand into Vietnam, some could be looking for talent in Vietnam. Uh, so I'd like to hear your thoughts about these two areas. Well, I think uh, Vietnam is a very poorly understood ecosystem, even amongst people who are inside of it. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think you could, you could, it's hard to understand Vietnam without understanding like a few major facts, right? It's like there's no country in Southeast Asia that received $100 million of venture capital investment 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, IDG Ventures, you know, going in there with $100 million. There's just no other uh, company no other country because all the other countries have woken up more recently mm -hmm. tech startup so it's older in Vietnam but at the same time it's very localized because maybe during that time 10 years ago there wasn't this whole regional conversation right and so a lot of the companies that are big out of that group or that aggregate are all big in Vietnam all the major companies that are very successful are big in Vietnam and so therefore you have all these managers and leadership and employees, people who all have learned how to think about Vietnam as a market and how to win in Vietnam as a market. There's not that many who've thought about, you know, the region. And not that anybody else across the region has really thought about the region either, honestly. You know, there's like a handful of people who really understand how that all works. And then, and then you also have this diaspora, you know, post-Vietnam War, you have a lot of people like me who either studied abroad or, um, who were born abroad like myself, who come back to Vietnam or who invest in Vietnam. And so there's this very strong connection between the valley. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so you're going to see guys like Misfit or Got It or uh, Adatau, just to name a few, who are successful abroad but not regionally. Mm -hmm. And that's leveraging upon this, you know, this several generations of engineers that have come through Vietnam. Um, but Vietnam lacks, you know, a lot of product. So a lot of Vietnamese, you know, when you talk to them, they're very proud of their technical talent, which is fair because compared to, you know, obviously compared to Singapore or compared to even Indonesia, the Philippines, um, Vietnam probably has more engineers of a, of a, of more experience mm -hmm. because of how old the ecosystem is. Mm -hmm. um, but that doesn't mean that they have any product expertise. Right, just because you have a um, you know thousand 
or or a hundred thousand PHP engineers doesn't mean you can produce anything. And this is the kind of challenge that I put to Vietnamese people who are so proud of technical talent. It's like, did you guys create a new language? Like, has any engineer in Vietnam created a new language or created some new plat some new platform or thing that nobody's ever seen before? And the the uh, the answer is usually probably no. Right? Mm-hmm. They're probably building on top of someone else's platform. So on engineering wise, you know, it's it's going to be leaning towards like more consumer things, things that are quote unquote easier to build, right? So um, so I see that if you're talking about the transformation of Vietnam, mm-hmm. and maybe the last five years, three or five years, it's kind of followed the trend of the rest of Southeast Asia, in that it's getting a little more aware of the region, getting a little more aware of like money coming in from Japan, for example, which is a big factor, money coming in from the U.S. So it's much more active now on the lower levels, I would say, like seed stage, uh, angel stages. Uh, but at the Series A level and above, you see Vietnamese companies really struggle. Um, it's, they struggle because of the reason that I mentioned before, is like they don't know how to think about the region too well. They're so local that most of the investors outside of Vietnam want to invest at a larger stage in companies that will go regional. Uh, there's not that many investors that are hyper local, uh, except for the very seed stage level guys, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so that limits Vietnamese startups. Um, but you're you're probably going to see, you know, once in a while you'll see these big fundings like Momo, thirty million dollars from Goldman Sachs, right? Mm-hmm. They're chartered, and you'll also probably see more technical stuff as Vietnam kind of grows up a little bit in that area. So that, that, I guess that is a that is how I, I see a few of the changes. I mean, it's it's always going to be very volatile and dramatic. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, every few years or every year or so, we see some kind of news that is very dramatic in Vietnam, like a company shutting down or mm-hmm. major news funding or Flappy Bird or this kind of thing that always is present. Mm-hmm. But Vietnam, it, well, on the macro startup ecosystem level, it's very steady and, and it does it doesn't. It's not actually too volatile outside of these crazy announcements that happen. I see. So, is the main action uh, or divide, is it in Ho Chi Minh or is it in Hanoi? Because these are the two main cities, right? Or are there anywhere else that the startup scene is also moving? I think that they are equal, Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh City. They're Mm -hmm. both pretty uh, mature in their own right. I think that Hanoi benefits from being the political capital, and it also has a longer generation of people who are technical. <clears throat> Arguably, you know, some people will argue that the best universities are, are up there in, in tech. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, you know, the market is really in Ho Chi Minh City. The city's bigger. There's more people that are willing to buy stuff, that are willing to try out new things. Uh, there's more interaction with the West in Ho Chi Minh City, and so therefore. Uh, the West, I mean, uh, uh, company, Western companies, right? That therefore, there's more of a market. So eventually, who, whatever like good Hanoian or good, good Hanoian company mm-hmm. uh, must come down to Ho Chi Minh City at some point. So that's kind of how the relationship is between the two cities. So you can't really see Vietnam as anything beyond besides like a two-city country. Uh, people who visit only Ho Chi Minh City are missing out on Hanoi. I mean, Flappy Bird came from Hanoi, but at the same time, VNG. Vietnam's uh, one of Vietnam's largest startups uh, comes from Ho Chi Minh City, right? Mm-hmm. 
but then all the leadership is from Hanoi. It's mm. kind of interesting. Uh, the uh, third city that people are talking about a lot is Da Nang, but you know, I got to play the harsh um, honesty on them is that you know a lot of people believe in Da Nang because number one, it's a very open city. Their population is very hardworking and educated, but they are just too small. Uh -huh. That alone, that the mathematics there alone is just dwarfs everything they could be. I mean, even if you know IBM is providing uh, you know traffic uh, data for them, even if they have like internet across the whole city, etc., it it is at best a digital nomad haven rather than a startup capital. Um, so yeah, I think that that's a problem that Denang faces. If it, it would be more like a Delaware or a Chiang Mai than anything like the Ho Chi Minh City. Uh, so yeah, I think I think most of the energy would have to go to Ho Chi Minh City and Hanoi. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I also have been reading up like um, most of the startups in Vietnam. Uh, the space that they are coming out are mostly e-commerce. So that sector that they are coming out right. Uh, right. So, what, what do you think about this? Is it s something that because uh, shopping or buy sell is easier to do, or the market is big enough? There's a lot of factors. I mean, in number one, e-commerce is doubling in mm -hmm. spend and, and value every year. Mm -hmm. The retail space in Vietnam is very underdeveloped, especially mm -hmm. in the countryside. So, when you talk to people like Lazada and uh, who I, I, I imagine is the dominant player. Mm -hmm. They they get about you know forty to fifty percent of their orders are in the countryside because of inventory right people want inventory outside of this uh, outside of the cities because they can't get it at their local retail so I think that's another factor I think another factor is that all these mom and pop stores and they they want to go online because they they're afraid that they're going to lose out to Lazada and they also want to get that extra income and then you got people random people who are you know selling things on Facebook and that kind of thing. I mean, Vietnamese people are, you know, this is a cliche now, is to say that they're very entrepreneurial. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a grain of truth to that, that, you know, most of the time when you talk to a Vietnamese person, they don't, like, what, what do you want to be when you grow up or whatever? They, they want to be their own boss. You know, it's like, why are you in this job? Because, you know, I'm learning so I can open my own shop or whatever it is. So there's a lot of that mentality. Um, so it kind of plays into this e-commerce thing because e-commerce doesn't require a lot of technical skills. There's a lot of solutions now that provide all that technical and logistics stuff for people already. So I think that's um, a major factor. Uh, so yeah, I think th these all play into it uh, considerably. And, and, and when you look like historically in the last, let's say, four years, uh -huh. when the Groupon craze happened, that's when e-commerce really woke up in Vietnam. I think about... Ten years ago, when e when IDG came in, there was a few companies that were trying e-commerce and just couldn't make it happen, mm -hmm. or never not to a significant extent. And then when you see the the recent craze, that you see like how kind of it's all playing out with uh, kind of these new e-commerce sites that can that can really attack new value for the customers. So in terms of like COD logistics and all these things, they they've all kind of been resolved in a certain respect. And so it makes it much easier for someone who is not so technical to just jump in. I think that what we're about to see maybe is some more on-demand stuff because now 
you know, just like everybody else in the world, you know, people are trying to copy the Uber model uh-huh. and, uh, and stuff like that. But it's also uh, it's also like a content issue as well, right? What's your so like, take on the? Oh, sorry. So con- content in Vietnam, I think, is uh-huh. at is is very weak. Uh-huh, uh-huh. It still has a lot of areas to develop. Obviously, because the media is highly regulated, it's a little dangerous to do content. But it's also because it's just the internet is so new that there's just you don't know what doctor to go to. You don't know which tailor is the best. You don't know any of that information because it's not online. Mm-hmm. So um, I think these are areas that will also play out, and that and that leads directly almost into e-commerce. Right? Uh-huh, yeah. As I get the content, then I can serve up the the payment model or whatever on top of the content. So. Yeah. yeah, I think that, that's where I want to uh, go a little bit deeper. How about the payment model, which is the payment gateway? Um, because I understand uh, when I was talking to some of my Vietnamese friends, they did mention that uh, payment gateway is one of the challenges they have uh, with yeah. e-commerce. Uh, so what's the problem then now, right now? Is it PayPal or...? Yeah, uh, you know, there's a lot of solutions. There's like Momo, there's SmartLink, uh, uh-huh. there's 1Pay. If you, uh, nobody is necessarily, I would say, dominant. To be honest, I don't know too much about the payment industry. Mm-hmm. But I just know that there's not too many, like there's not a huge dominant player mm-hmm. that's making you know, outsized margins. But uh, yeah, I think, the, I think the issue is also that the banks are regulated. It's hard to get a banking license. It's hard to integrate with banks who are a little more archaic in their thinking. And so this, this also limits things. And then, and then there's the issue of corruption and people loving cash. So uh, cash is just much easier for people. There's not that many people with you know, ways to accept like credit cards. Um, like a lot of shops don't have, don't have that. Uh, probably in the urban areas, definitely they do. But when you, when you start leaving the urban areas or you go into the outskirt districts, you're going to see less people who can accept non-cash. And... And then there's a lot of people who are saving cash, or they're buying gold, and they keep it under their uh, under their beds and that kind of thing. It's either it's it's a trust issue, plus it's mm-hmm. also a corruption issue because a lot of people are they're getting this untaxed money, right? And they have to save it in some way. So saving it in cash or in in gold is a better way to do it. So I think all of these issues kind of play out um, and make payment uh, put payment at risk. Uh, I think I think maybe the future is coming where you know, with guys like Momo, is that uh, people want to do more mobile type payment, and and hopefully that is kind of the future. Hopefully, we start to see something like uh, M-Pesa, uh, like the Kenya, the Kenyan uh, payment model. So, mm-hmm. if if anything, that would be the way. You know, it's also it's also a tel a telco issue, right? Because with the case of M-Pesa, the telcos in Kenya were I think it's Kenya, right? But uh, yeah, correct. We need to integrate. You know, payment into their telco system, um, and I think that there's an opportunity to do that here with Viettel and Vinaphone and all that. But I think that they are not in that thinking quite yet. Mm-hmm. I think that you know, most of the mobile payments um, in Vietnam, I think the telcos take up to like 40 or 50 percent, or even 60 percent sometimes. I think it's 30, 30 to 60 percent. I can't remember the exact number, but it's a, it's it's a it's such an amount that is just sometimes not worth it even. One of the startups that I know, they started out doing only mobile payment as an option to do payment mm-hmm. uh, to, for their services online. So it was like a consumer play. Uh, 
I don't want to name names, but they're they doing pretty successful. Mm-hmm. But the moment that they switched over to say, okay, we will do COD for you to buy this online service from us, uh-huh. and we'll like send a guy to your house and pick up the money, that's when they really started to see more significant growth. Oh, wow. So, so I think that, that, that these, see, this is a pretty systemic issue. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it'll go away anytime too soon. I think it'll take you know, maybe another like two to five years before we start to see significant credit card usage. So, oh, interesting. Uh, another part will be the talent that uh, I'm sure uh, some listeners, uh, those especially those in startups, right? Uh, one of the things they locally, Singapore, right, they will say that um, maybe we'll set up an offshore team. The typical countries that they will consider is either Philippines, Vietnam, definitely, some maybe for hardware in Taiwan. Uh, so in this uh, aspect of talent, uh, how, how do you see uh, for startups outside Vietnam coming in and uh, to hire the people? Is it uh, that easy to hire or because there's a large pool of developers? I think uh, it's... You know, when I when people tell me that they want to do that, I always tell them to be careful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, What's the reason? Vietnam, yeah. Vietnam is two 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 major reasons. That number one, like the technical talent is not as good as you think, and but also sometimes better than you think. So the reason why I say that is because there's a lot of people that I've met who've done that. They come to the country and they say, "Oh, it's cheaper," but then you get what you pay for. Yeah, there's a lot of headaches, management headaches, and that kind of thing. Um, and so you, there's there's kind of this this issue where if you do hire developers in Vietnam, you either need to be flying there a lot, or you need to be hiring like a local manager who really understands you, like the Western context mm-hmm. plus the 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 Vietnamese context. So that those that's a major issue I think that, that going in. Um, so but at the same time there's there's going to be sometimes these developers that you meet in Vietnam who are like top class. Uh, so it's it's kind of interesting. I think it's funny that when you look at two different companies in Vietnam, right? You look at Atlassian. Atlassian, you know, recently they just acquired somebody, but they they uh, they IPO'd. But prior to their IPO, they came into Vietnam. They opened up a big big office, and then right before IPO, mm-hmm. they they left Vietnam. Oh. And so that tells you something, right? Maybe they didn't fire, find the right leadership. They didn't find the right engineers that they wanted, the top line, you know, 10 years of experience engineers that they wanted. And then that's one company. Then you look at Misfit Wearables, where, you know, they're building a company that got acquired for $200 million. Mm-hmm. Also, they're building a pretty high-tech IoT product, <clears throat> which requires a lot of design. And engineering, yeah. and you know, a majority of their engineers are in Vietnam. Uh, when you look at Garena, which is a Singaporean company, a lot of their engineers are also in Vietnam. So you have to be sure that you have the correct approach when you're coming into Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the biggest warning that I have for people. I see. So um, with this uh, aspect, I little segue to now that you are here. Uh, how do you see the Singapore startup scene, the ecosystem itself? How is it different? Uh, and maybe uh, if you can see the good and the bad over here. I, I think, you know, I, I said this before, I think uh, Singapore is like a young adult and, mm-hmm. and Vietnam is like a teenager. 
uh, teenagers have an allowance. They don't have too much money. So they can't have to figure it out without money, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the little immature. I think Singapore is maturing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a young adult, so it has money. It's been working hard for the money that it's got. Uh, but uh, but I think that's also a limiting factor for Singapore because you have so much money that, and not enough engineers. So there's going to be some kind of growing pains there, I think, in the next uh, in the next few years. But I, I I see Singapore consistently as being probably the number one startup scene in Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. That's just my perception. I think it's just the the networking and the people and the government support. Um, and then there's the multinational corporations that are here. It's just so much um, crisscrossing that it's hard for Singapore not to be at the forefront unless somehow Indonesia gets all of its stuff together and and uh, and out innovates and out raises Singapore. But I just don't see that happening. And Singapore has too, or in, Indonesia has too many problems systemically and infrastructurally. So I, I think Singapore has that going for it. I uh-huh. think there. Is not that much crea- creativity that I see in the people, um, but I do see a lot of really unique situations in different sectors like fintech and, and that kind of thing. So I, I think it's hard to argue against Singapore, really. Uh, mm-hmm. Been in Vietnam and then coming here, yeah. And 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 I feel like there's not too many like political or cultural issues between Singaporeans and the foreigners that live here. Mm-hmm. So I think that also makes things. Like considerably easier. I mean, Vietnam, it has, uh, it has a lot of um, political and dramatic issues between founders or between the government, all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, it slows things down. I think Malaysia, you know, has racial issues and and some infrastructural political issues. Philippines, I think, is like still catching up. Um, and Thailand is just, in a way, too small, even though it's very, uh, very excited. The energy is strong there. I think it, it's it's just Singapore just has so much going for it. Yesterday, I was uh, talking to a uh, a company CEO, which is also a startup, uh, and two things came to mind revolving this uh, area, uh, and I like to uh, hear your thoughts on it. What about the market size of Singapore? It's very small. So typically, when uh, we do a startup over here, they will usually say that. Uh, use Singapore as a test ground, but always think big and go overseas. Uh, what do you think about this statement? Because our market size is definitely much smaller compared to Vietnam or even yeah. uh, Taiwan or Japan and everywhere. Yeah, I, I don't know if I agree with that. Um, I, think, I think that, number one, I think that Singapore is like Israel mm-hmm. in that sense, in that it's, like Israel cannot access the Middle East because of the you know, the war and, and, and that kind of thing, right? Um, but Singapore is similarly, it, it has to access the rest of the region. So Israel must go outside of itself for a market, right? It must go to Europe, it must go to the U.S. And so then founders go to the U.S., founders go to Europe. Uh, and I think that's a huge advantage for Israel in the long term. I think Singapore should be doing that, and that's, that's a big advantage. Singaporeans in general probably think regionally better than... Even though I think Singaporeans are also not that great at thinking regionally, <laughs> they're better at, like, let's say Vietnamese or whatever. You know, I, obviously Indonesians cannot think regionally. They can only think Indonesia because it's so big, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that necessarily 
starting with Singapore as a market is a good idea. I think uh, I think there are certain companies that can do it, like let's say Carousel. Mm-hmm. But I think companies like Redmart, they, they might get stuck in Singapore. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so I think that's that's kind of the, the risk that you're taking. Unless you have a very clear market that, that okay, Carousel, it's going to go to Taiwan, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't go to Indonesia, or it may soon or whatever, but... You know, I think that those are examples of of how Singapore can make you stuck. It's just Singapore is a different world. It's like arguably more advanced than San Francisco mm-hmm. in terms of like uh, actually, I think I really think it is. Uh, you know, in terms of having come from California, Singapore is more advanced than any city that I've been to in, in the states. Um, it's just the MRT system, infrastructure, the politics, everything, right? And so. If you're going to build in that environment, <clears throat> you're going to get stuck in that environment. And nothing, no country in Southeast Asia is anything like Singapore. Not you're not even Malaysia. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No. So. Taiwan. <laughs> Taiwan, yeah, but Taiwan's not Southeast Asia. Uh, uh, uh. But, uh, True. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, you know, I, I could see it happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I could see a company that starts in Singapore jumping into Taiwan, Korea, Japan. Mm-hmm. You know, the tigers. Mm-hmm. In Hong Kong and stuff, but uh, yeah, yeah, that that. But then you maybe you're missing the Southeast Asian opportunity and stuff. Who knows? Correct, true. Yeah. So, but then you know, I mean, Vertex yeah. we invested in PatSnap, which is, you know, its other offices in London, right? So yeah, you know, it, it, but, it, but PatSnap it, their origin uh, they started from Singapore, NUS, and but the their key base is in China, right? Yeah, right. Also, yeah. and also, yeah, right. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, I can see it happen if if you think in that way. Uh-huh. Not in a okay. I'm gonna get done in Singapore, and then I'm gonna jump to Indonesia. Like, mm-hmm. like unless. And the thing is that uh, this this is another thing I've been thinking about lately, which doesn't quite answer your question. But uh. I I haven't seen that many multinational companies. <clears throat> that is to say, multinational founding teams. Okay. Like, how many teams can you think about where the founders are Malaysian, Indonesian, and Singaporean, or Malaysian? Uh, Filipino and Singaporean, or whatever it is, right? Uh-huh. Vietnamese and Indonesian, like very, very rare. Most of the time, what I've seen is people will hire a mid-manager uh-huh. in another country. They usually, um, and if they're a corporation like Lazada or whatever, obviously they're going to hire like uh, a more senior management to run the company and name them a managing director and that kind of thing. Yeah. But it's pretty rare to see a founding team, like to start from zero, Come out with being a, a multi multinational. So I think that if if that you know if I see if I start to see more of that, I'd be I'd be pretty impressed actually. And that's where uh, I like to tie up with the second question with this, which is you know the funding and the grant. Uh, so there are some thoughts about. Um, so you know that we have grants. We have those uh, spring grants. We have those those uh, iGEM grants. Uh, uh, some people that I talk to thinks that uh, that is not that great because uh, because it is kind of like a the government grant the government money and they are putting it to you because uh, you just submitted a business plan uh, but if you are able to raise from private investor uh, it actually means much more than taking a grant so I like to hear your thoughts that. Whether do you think the grants are actually a, a weakness 
in the Singapore ecosystem and also because the grants are more uh, welcoming to Singaporeans and which could be the reason why there are less uh, multinationals uh, or Southeast Asian founders grouping together for the grant. Right. So you there are actually two questions to this, yeah, with the right. funding part. All right, you're going to have to remind me of the first. The first question is why... Do you think that the grant is I actually a bad, bad thing? Because if you are hungry enough, you should be able to secure you know, uh, private investment like you no, know, like privacy in China. Right. Like in SV, there's not much public grant. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, the, my perspective on this coming from Vietnam mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is that, you know, the, these grants and, you know, all these programs that mm -hmm. are accelerators, government-backed accelerators, all this kind of stuff, is like to die for in Vietnam. Like, they're what everybody wishes was happening, right? Uh-huh, uh, -huh. uh There's always, I think, always there's going to be some stigma when the government is involved in anything. Um, there's always going to be people who are naysaying and that kind of thing. So, okay, fair enough. And governments, you know, they're, they're not, they don't have the same kind of incentives. They don't understand, they may not even understand what tech is and how it scales and all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I don't see it as a bad thing at all. I think that um, there is not that many entrepreneurs that are in the Singapore ecosystem to start with. And if they're going to give grants to people to just wet their beak a little bit and mm -hmm. try things out, then it's, it's a long-term game, right? I think that, uh, I, I think, I, I think that long-term it's hard to argue against, uh, the benefits. I mean, what, what is the worst it could do? Is it, it going to spoil entrepreneurs and teach them the wrong thing? Okay. But they, they're going to learn that bad stuff anyway. And then they have to, go back in, try again, you know, like that's just part of the, how ecosystems work. I think, uh, I think the best thing a government could do is probably just get out of the way, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and make things easier, but you know, Singapore already makes things really easy. And maybe this, the second best thing a government could do is like invest heavily in military technology and research and development, which is what really gave birth to Silicon Valley, right? Mm -hmm. um, but obviously, you know, that, that's a whole other discussion. Um, which also would probably cost millions and billions of dollars. So I think I, I don't see anything wrong with it. I, I, I can see why the government also wants to get involved because they already you know, helped out with the Block 71 issue and, and, and these other, uh, you know, backing up a lot of these other companies and, and investors, right? I mean, a lot of, the, like, you know, a bunch of, a handful of investors in, Viet, in, in, in Singapore have received government money as well, right? So, like, I don't know, it's... it's uh, you kind of you could you could have kind of seen it coming as well, right? The government wants to get more and more involved, so it's going to do it via money. So yeah, I, I think it's I think it's quite alright, mm -hmm. and and I I think the same thing about corporate accelerators. I think <clears throat> corporate accelerators are definitely incentivized to not really support their like portfolios that they invest in because it go it may or may not go against their core business model. Mm -hmm. But I think uh, if done right, some accelerators can, they'll probably fail, they'll learn from their failures and they'll move on or they'll try again and be better about it. So I think there's a, I think for both the government and the corporates, they're, they're, they've got a similar learning curve. So how, how about the part where earlier we were talking about the multinational founding team, uh, do you think the grants could be a reason? Because if 
Right. If you are a multinational funding team, you could easily go to uh, like uh, elsewhere of the countries besides Singapore because right now the grants are more uh, again welcoming to Singaporeans. That's why you no know, we uh, more Singaporeans are coming together. That's why there is less of the multinational founding team. Right. Well, I I honestly don't know how the law works with these uh, these grants and stuff, but. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, if there's a clause that says that it, this, the founding team has to be all Singaporeans, then okay, like maybe that's, that's not so great. <laughs> it's but, not about all, I think. It's more of the like, higher percentage needs to belong to Singaporean, no? Yeah. 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 I, I think, definitely, I think that um, that would be a problem. I mean, I mean Elon Musk is, is not an American, right? Original. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, it's cliche to say that, but... Um, but yeah, I think I think there's a lot of truth to that. Larry Page and all of them, Sergey Brin, I think. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I mean, I but fair enough. I understand why Singaporeans want to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, why Singapore want to be a little more favorable to um, to uh, citizens. But uh, but yeah, it, it, it may it, hey, may, it may contribute. But at the same time, there's a lot of companies that are just registering Singapore because they need to or have to, right? Mm-hmm. There's plenty of Vietnamese companies that are now registered in Singapore. Mm-hmm. So, uh, as I move into this uh, the Singapore uh, startup ecosystem, um, I also like to talk about Vertex Holding. So, what exactly is the role of uh, Series A investment or way above uh, Series A, Series B, Series C for Vertex well, Holding? I guess uh, I guess you can say the range is like three to fifteen million. Uh-huh, uh-huh. The average is like five million. Um, so yeah, I, I so think is it across all portfolios or uh, there's specific sector that you're looking like transport space? Yeah, we're we're pretty opportunistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, consumer internet, mobile, mm-hmm. you know, higher growth mm-hmm. industries. You know, we also look at fintech, blockchain. I mean, it's pretty opportunistic. We're looking at everything, um, but we have a few kind of caveats. Like we like people that are regional. We like them in a certain maturation stage. Uh, and, and, and so that, that's kind of what drives the thesis. But what, I wouldn't want to go too much into the thesis, but those are a few things, those are a few factors that we look at. Okay. So Technology. Vertex Holding, uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> because like uh, Vertex Holding, it seems, so I'm in the startup scene, but I, I, I keep on having this thought process like the Vertex Holding is uh, uh, some, some way... Um, so they're not so close to us, like the the right. rest of the people that are in block 71, 79 and all. Right. And uh, so what is uh, Vertex Holding? Because I understand you have co-working space. Is yeah. it uh, something that you all do to try to get closer to identify the high growth startup in the early stage? Uh, actually, not really. I mean, the, so, okay, so that's kind of two questions, right? I mean, mm-hmm. one, one is, I guess, we're, we're kind of aloof. Um, that's kind of our culture. Uh, we've been around for a pretty long time, maybe about twenty something years, mm-hmm. and so uh, we've been around before the ecosystem even really got started, right? Mm-hmm. Or we really got into the momentum that it is now. Yeah. So, you know, we we've kind of been at arm's length. We're we're very careful. Some people will probably probably see us as conservative. Uh, that's all right. I mean, I think that uh, the newer generation of investors and startups and stuff we didn't like grow up in that so maybe that's also why we're not as well known or, or, or perceived as as kind of like hip right mm-hmm. um, 
And so maybe in a way, you know, doing tech circle is a way to, to kind of get closer to the ecosystem. I think that, you know, we have a, our chairman uh, who was also at NSTB, uh, and also, uh, 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 on the board with Temasek and stuff. So he's, he's, he has a pretty long-term thinking about where he wants, uh, Vertex to be in the ecosystem. And, and so with NSTB, he was really encouraging a lot of investment, uh, from the government into programs that would probably not see any result for another five to 10 years or more. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the thinking with Vertex now is that he's kind of thinking, okay, what can we do that, you know, has a more long-term benefit? and not necessarily like deal flow for us. So, um, because, because with Tech Circle, most of the startups there are very, very, very early stage. Not, some of them haven't raised funding. Some of them maybe raised a little bit, a hundred mil, a uh, hundred thousand or whatever. And, but for us, that's, you know, that's years away for us. So we don't necessarily use that as a sourcing mechanism, especially because a lot of our sourcing comes from going out there and meeting people and, and, and referrals and, and doing our own research. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's more about really giving back to the community. We've set aside like a certain amount of budget mm -hmm. to <clears throat> every year to, to kind of give back. Um, I mean, we're like a hundred, hundred, uh, over a hundred million dollar fund. So we have, <clears throat> we feel like over the last, you know, 20 years or so that we've kind of benefited a lot from the ecosystem. So there's this feeling that, okay, we need to give back and uh, not necessarily to, to kind of prop up Vertex. So you'll see that we, you know, we don't um, we don't go out there that much, even though we still are doing Tech Circle. We don't go out and like do what um, the other larger firms or corporations are doing in terms of in outreach and stuff. So. Yeah, how about the co-working space? So uh, does anyone apply to it, or specific sector? specific uh, startup in certain space applies to it the yeah I mean we people can apply and then we will basically uh, vet them and look at what their background is and uh -huh. are they a startup or are they an investor or what sectors do they like and they, are they in tech or not because the, the name is Technopreneur Circle right mm -hmm. it's actually a name that our chairman came up with um, and so the, the whole idea is to definitely support tech and, and and so we want to prove people that are not in, the, in that sector. Actually, I didn't, uh, so <clears throat> I, I, d I didn't know about this uh, co-working space in Vertex Holding till I did some reading and also asked some friends and they say, hey, do you know actually Vertex has a co-working space and uh, it, it just wasn't much publicized. Um, but the, the, the sites uh, do uh, share some stuff about it. There are a lot of events coming up over there as well. Yeah, I mean, we... Yeah, like I said, we don't we don't want to be yeah. too loud, right? Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. um, you know, we have like eleven hundred members, and that's already a lot for us, mm -hmm. um, and it's a little over overwhelming. So we're just kind of you know going at our own pace, uh, trying to give as much value as we can to our current membership. So in terms of like the events that we do, most of them are like very hands-on, workshoppy. Uh, we try to, and and we like this kind of like thirty-person event or twenty-person, fifty-person event where people can you know, be very intimate uh -huh. with speakers and with each other and kind of get to know, you know a more personal, personal thing instead of like this huge event where the guy's on stage with like a thousand people or whatever and, and maybe you trade cards with them and that's about it, right? Uh -huh. right? And so, uh, uh, yeah, we're, we're definitely leaning towards that uh, type of uh, 
type of impact for our own small community. Mm. Does the uh, I understand uh, people need to sign up, but how about the uh, events like uh, I was look, looking through the site like Blockchain One Hundred One, and people is uh, if our public is interested, do they can can they walk in to attend or uh, no not members usually, only? Usually not. We we do have quarterly events in uh-huh. which everybody is invited, uh-huh. but uh, generally the the events that are in the space are you know they, they you have to be a member. I see. Um, but it's, you know, it's not so hard. You just go on the site and you, and you sign up. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, um, and, th- so, and those events like Blockchain 101 and, and these, they're, they are requested by members or organized by members. Oh, wow. Or organized by us. Uh-huh. So, what, like Blockchain, there's a lot of interest recently. So, we just kind of found, uh, found people that talk about Blockchain and then uh-huh. other members also just suggested that they could speak. Uh-huh. And so, we're definitely keen to do that you know like we also had like a legal firm that's also members they also gave a talk about like how to set up their comp how to set up your company and that kind of thing so so it's kind of like of, of members by members oh i see because so, i'm looking forward to a chat in the chatbot space <laughs> yeah we could we could do something right there i'm actually working on a vr ar and ai people right now oh wow um, but obviously that kind of stuff is a little harder to find in Singapore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, uh, I also want to bring this out a little bit. Uh, so you did to, actually you did the, uh, Vietnam, uh, the open source ecosystem, Google doc, right? Which right. is, uh, full of information that is very helpful. So for people, be it outside of Vietnam, uh, the startups, uh, coming into it or for the Vietnamese themselves to use, um, Recently, uh, you also created one for Singapore. Right. And I mean, what prompts you to start this two side project? You know, I, uh, actually, the real reason is because of two factors. Uh-huh. One is that I think media like Tech in Asia, E27, Deal Street Asia, uh-huh. Vulcan or whatever, they will only cover news because their KPI is traffic. Uh-huh. <clears throat> and so when you want them to list things that are like local events or community uh, community programs and things like that, they're less likely to because the potential for views is lower. So there's that problem. Uh, so what are you going to read about in Technasia, which is great, uh-huh. uh, you know, like the latest grab news or the latest news on um, how well you know, Happy Fresh is performing or whatever, all these things, right? Uh-huh. Or like how is Didi Kwaiti doing or how is Alibaba doing? Um, and on the other side, there's, there's these people, um, across the ecosystem who are doing like infographics and slides and these things that are, um, very informative and they are condensing a a lot of information into one place. But like with the infographics there, it's just a bunch of images, Mm -hmm. right? And people will use them in their slides or if you go talk about Singapore to, Silicon Valley, you'll put that in your slides and stuff and say, hey, this is the Singapore instance. See, it's very vibrant. It doesn't tell you anything, though, because it's just a bunch of logos. It doesn't tell you what all these companies or organizations do. Mm-hmm. So that was the other motivator for me. It's like, okay, on one side, media won't cover mm-hmm. the ecosystem, which is like non-startups that are helping startups, right? Uh-huh. On the other side, nobody is, is giving like comprehensive data or information upon how, what these organizations are doing, if they, even if they are consolidating all the information. So that was my main motivator. And then 
I did it in Vietnam first, just because I'm close to Vietnam, and mm-hmm. they all contributed. And then I thought, hey, you know, why not doing it you know, in Singapore? And now I'm already, I've already got the Thailand, Thailand version, and I'm working on the Malaysian Indonesia version right now. And I think, uh, I think what is is next is I'm going to turn this into like a data visualization, and maybe eventually into some kind of website where anybody can edit and add. Uh, some kind of like a wiki-like situation. Yeah, so that's would, an ideal uh, ending for that. Oh yeah, I was about to ask you what's what's coming up after Singapore. So most likely it's going to be Thailand, Malaysia, right? Like you mentioned. Yeah, basically every country. I want to cover every country in Southeast Asia, all eleven, even uh-huh. smaller countries like Cambodia um, and Laos and stuff. Just mm-hmm. because you know, I want to have like a full comprehensive map. Uh, with descriptions and data, mm-hmm. every program in the ecosystem. Yeah, I think I I think it's really useful, especially the uh, when I was going through the Vietnam one. Uh, there is those uh, and I think you list it under the startup factories. Yeah. Right. Uh, so there's some. This is usually the source where uh, if someone asks me hey, if I'm thinking of going to Vietnam to set up something or maybe I have an idea but I cannot build, <laughs> sometimes I will just give them the sh- <laughs> this Google Doc <laughs> and share it with them. Yeah. Right. It, it's quite convenient. Uh, right. And for Singapore ones, uh, right now, uh, it was also trending and there's a lot of information. But how do you control this flow of inf- information? You don't actually control, right? You just Because it's open source, even I contributed and um, what if someone writes rubbish? Is there a moderation to it? <laughs> I, 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 I don't I, know. Because, yeah. well, I, do, I do go in. You know, I actually have a team. We have about four people right now. We're all oh, working wow. okay. on volunteering. Um, but we do go in uh, uh, periodically, uh-huh. like a few days or so, and take a look. And, and uh, obviously, um, the nice thing about Google Docs is that the entire revision history is in there. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And that's why that there are two reasons why I use Google Docs is because one, it's not like a wiki where you have to like sign in and you have to edit in order to edit and that kind of thing. Like you have to click on edit, you can immediately edit, right? Uh-huh. Number two, there's a revision issue, so I can even if someone messed with it, I can go back and and and, and take the the data that I want. So when we move into the next stage of turning it into a website or something like that, uh-huh. um, then then uh, then we'll 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 dig deeper and make sure that everything's Everything's okay. So that's something that I will personally do along with the, the rest of the people on the team. Wow. The, how do you find time? Because you, <laughs> you have so many Google Sheets, right? You have a team, you have a small uh, group of friends doing this, and you have your job. And um, so how do you manage your time? I mean, uh, I don't. I, it's horrible. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, I, I don't find that it actually takes up that much time to go through and edit the document. Uh-huh. Um, you know, if I if I wanted to go through one document, it'd probably take me an hour. Um, okay. Just because uh, it, I don't know, it, it's kind of it's it's not too hard to sense if somebody's BSing the data, um, and I can just check back with the website nearby. So it's not too hard. Um, but obviously, uh, you know, it, there's a risk, and I think that's all right. Um, it's just like any other database. There's going to be a, Data that's incomplete and stuff. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, ex- I accept the the problem there, but uh, we'll we'll try our best to kind of, kind of make it better over time. So it's very it's still very early stage and yeah. 
So um, the nice, nice thing though is that the Google Doc, right, itself, since it's such a low bar, it's like Snapchat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Snapchat, you, you can take a picture of anything. It's okay. The Google Doc is like everybody will be like, oh well, it's a Google Doc anyway. It's all right. It's you know, <laughs> there's bound to be problems. You know, it's part of the branding itself. Mm-hmm. It's a good way to consolidate all the information. Uh, in the past, there was a Google Doc that uh, they call it the Startup Jobs. Uh, that was before Startup Jobs Asia, I think. They, um, so all the startups, they just threw everything into a, a Google Sheet, uh, putting down the positions they are looking to hire. And it became really wild too. For then until, uh, after a short while, then people turned into the website. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, so... So I'm moving out and like to understand, are you still writing, uh, be it uh, like uh, ad hoc basis or uh, you're writing uh, like for tech in Asia or you're writing more on medium right now? Uh, I write, uh, <laughs> I, actually ironically I write on my typewriter every morning about, oh, five, okay. about five minutes but mostly fiction lately. Oh. Have you thought of uh, publishing a book soon? <laughs> uh, just like short stories, like science fiction stuff, which is actually my real passion. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I always have a lot of thoughts about the existence, so I write about them. Um, actually, this conversation made me think about that multinational founders issue. Maybe I'll write it, something about that. Um, but yeah, so I, I think, uh, you know, if it's on Medium, then, you know, it's, it's not really the right audience for me. Okay. Uh, if it's, it, that, that's more like personal stuff or like thoughts, random thoughts I have about other things. If I want to write about the ecosystem, then I'll write on Tech in Asia or E27. So, nowadays I'm agnostic about the platform. Yeah. You, you also run a newsletter as well? Right? I have new- a personal newsletter, but that's like very, uh, it's just like the philosophical stuff that I think about. Uh-huh. Cool. Uh, that's for this week. And we thank you, Min, for his time. And see you all next week. Bye-bye. Thanks, Brian. Bye. Hello, if you are still listening, thank you very much. Uh, This is a personal message from me. And uh, I would like to ask if uh, you could help us leave an honest review on iTunes because this will help others discover our show and also to help us improve. Uh, We understand that uh, our audio quality has much to be improved as well. Uh, But most importantly, we would love to know what areas of tech would you like to find out more on for example chatbots or ARVR so we can find the experts in that sector and come and do some sharing or if there is any particular individuals that you would like to be on the show like think that they are suitable to be on your show we will try all our means or if you have any recommendation we would love to invite them on the show too uh, you can find me on twitter at L-E-E-T-U-C-K-S-N-G uh, I would love to hear your feedback Thank you and bye-bye.